The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 13th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. It's hard to believe how far behind Irish business, particularly retail, is behind the times. There's a lot of good that can be said about Irish business, but when it comes to the internet, retailers are, for a large part, crap. It's 25, 30 years since people started selling and shopping online, but for some reason, Irish retailers are playing a game of catch-up, or not bothering to catch-up, not bothered or uh, not my sort of thing, or whatever the draconian attitude is amongst shops in this country. As a result, uh, the government is going to give money to do the job for them. Damien English, the Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail, and Fine Gael, TD for Mead West, joins us to announce uh, a new round of funding, €9.3 million Euro this time, Minister. Uh, thanks, Michael, and good morning to yourself and to all your listeners. Yeah, I'm, I'm delighted that we're, we're in a position again to open this scheme this year. 9.3 million we made available. Uh, applications are open since the 5th of May, but I will warn everybody they close this month. Uh, this is a very positive scheme to assist and uh, businesses with their expenditure and with their development of their digital strategy, of their online strategy, uh, to try to reach new customers within Ireland and abroad. How much has been spent uh, on this so far? Uh, we spent us under 20 million, Mike, on this scheme over right, the last couple okay. of years. Yeah. We enhanced it a lot during COVID because I think the point you made earlier on, we've, we're trying to encourage businesses to focus on the opportunity here mm. to develop new sales. And they're not interested, jobs. though. I mean, I mean, you can't blame anybody for going to ASOS or to Amazon or uh, to Littlewoods or whatever because, you know, they do it properly. They have years of experience of doing it and they have an interest in doing it. And when you go on through their website, it's up to date. The stuff arrives. There's no problem. Instead of uh, the gobbledygook that some Irish businesses put online. Uh, it's fair to say, Michael, some businesses are doing an extremely good job. I mean, if you look at the, I mean, even for today we launched this scheme, it was in Navan Higher there, and they were able to show me the, how, how they've changed their system over the last couple of years with assistance from this grant. Absolutely, but they'd be the exception, wouldn't they, Minister? Well, look, there's about 15 companies that have this scheme in Loud uh, already over the last couple of years, 17 in, in, in Mead. There are companies that are excelling in this mm. area. We're trying to, what we're trying to do here, Michael, is to encourage companies to invest in their services, in their digital offerings. But that's mad, online. isn't it? I mean, shouldn't it be part of any business plan in this day and age that if you're going to set up a business or if you're in business, that part of your business plan would to have a, an online element to it? And in retail, that online sales would be a fundamental part of your business. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. And in fairness, thousands of businesses have pivoted over the last two years, many because they were forced to, or during covid all of because they can see the opportunity. But it does come at two issues. It comes at a high cost, and it, you also need access to the right people to help you develop the right strategy for your business. So this grant is a, is a coordinated yeah, they should, grant. They, they need, if they need people to help them, they shouldn't be in business. I, I mean, they should be able to employ somebody, if nothing else, in this day and age, to well, look after their online. I mean, that that's just gobbledygook nonsense. I think, Michael, now, to be fair, all of us have a team of people who assist us in our work. You have us. Yeah, you employ people to do it. That's what I'm saying. Yes, and this is is an assistance to bring in experts that you might need full-time to be employed to come in uh, to to look at your business, develop a strategy with you, develop a training program in-house for your staff, for your students, because we recognise, we've hands up here, we recognise as some of our businesses are playing catch-up. We want to assist that, Johnny, because, Michael, there's a win here for the country. If they've done nothing over the last 
25 years, what are they going to do now? Should you not leave that money for young entrepreneurs or help to bring down the cost of living or something like that yeah. instead of giving it to these people who have absolutely no interest, it seems, in online trade? OK, if I can just, just to be clear here, this is for businesses that are already up and running, that are already online, that have uh, high street presence, have a physical store as well. And this is to help them go take the next step and to develop that offering to be able to compete for the customers in Ireland who are shopping abroad online, for mm. customers abroad who want to shop in Ireland as well. So this is to help those businesses, but also to help create jobs and sales. All those businesses that we work with, we work with thousands mm. of businesses through our local enterprise offices, through Enterprise Ireland, through IDA, supporting through taxpayers money to help those businesses grow and the future proof. So if you successfully apply for the funding, um, what's the criteria? So again, th- this offering uh, is to Enterprise Ireland. So for companies that have 10 plus employees, yep. you have to have already a some presence online yep. and you want to develop that. You have to have a physical store and 50% plus of your business has to be business to customer and it has to be in, in selling products, not just services because there are a com- okay. combination of business uh, every service. Do you, have to have all your, do you have to have all of your products online? Uh, you don't have to have all your products online. Do you, no. do you have to have all of your prices online? You, you would have to. So generally, you would have to. You will work part of your application form. I'm encouraging people interested in this to look at the starter kit that's available to Enterprise Ireland. So you'd work through the best model to develop for your business. And part of that would be working. Well, I mean, these are the problems with Irish businesses online. They don't have their products online. If they have a website, uh, they don't have the prices online. Uh, It's out of date. It's not updated. Uh, They get the government funding. Uh, They put up the website and then they forget about it. They don't respond to emails. They don't uh, have online service chats and all of that kind of thing that you get from people who have an interest in online sales. Michael, I think I have to say, I have to be, you're being very unfair. Am I? I I, I don't. Why are these international companies so popular online? Why did, why did Irish companies start getting interested in selling on the internet during COVID when they couldn't open their doors to customers because the business was going out of the country to Littlewoods and Amazon and wherever else? Yeah, so what we're trying to do here, let, let's just stand back for a second. The retail sector in Ireland is a massive private sector employing about 300,000 people. Part of my job working with the retailers is to future-proof that sector. And if we are to continue to have that high number of jobs and increase it and develop those shops on our streets as well as online, we have to work with those businesses like we do in many sectors to help them develop and compete with international competition. That's what we're doing here. Some businesses, you can argue, are slow to the table. Others are there and need assistance. Mm. This grant is to work with any business. Some people, some businesses do it brilliantly for nothing. Some businesses do it brilliantly because within, within their own structure they're able to afford to do that. All the businesses need assistance. You don't need money. I mean, you can do it on Facebook or TikTok or, or whatever. I mean, when people are interested, they're interested and they use these tools as tools, not as something that I have to get around to, which is the attitude of a lot of shops. And you know that, Minister. Yeah, but Michael, to be, to be fair here now, and very often in a small business, let's say you're employing 10, 15 people, you, you are working day and night to run that business and make sure your products and services are there, pay your staff, manage all the yeah. staff. You've loads to do. You're, you're, and it's you're giving me a 1990s argument, Minister. Uh, Michael, just to be clear, it's fair to say, in some cases, some businesses have not prioritised their digital offering or their online sales. We want to, because Ireland will benefit from this. We want to encourage that. Some businesses have tried yeah. and have gone on you to see, sell at that. You see, that's not accepted. That was acceptable 25 years ago. It's not acceptable now. I mean, it should be part and parcel of any business plan today, especially a retailer's. Uh, so, so, Michael, if, if a retailer is to survive into the future, I would say it is essential to have both 
online and a physical presence. The online is really, really important. But that does come at a cost. Many small businesses out there are, are barely making a profit. They're surviving week to week. The state now, through this scheme and many other schemes... But give the money to entrepreneurs instead of these dinosaurs. Yeah, but many of these are entrepreneurs, and many of these are... Young, young, upcoming entrepreneurs. uh, We won't be ages, but there's plenty of new uh, entrepreneurs of all ages out there developing businesses. And you see many Mm. cases, you see businesses being taken over by a new generation, or you see new talent coming in. This is to encourage all businesses in the retail sector to think about online, to focus their minds, to develop. But, Michael, it, it comes at a high cost. So this yeah, is, well... Cases, it's, so we are going to resist... Will there be any follow-up on what they do with the funding? There absolutely is. So so to be able to draw down this funding, it's not a case of just going online, applying for it, and you draw it down. You have to put in place a strategy that you're going to implement yeah. that will be monitored by Enterprise Ireland in conjunction with Enterprise Ireland uh, over the next couple of years. And it's about bringing in the right skills to help you plan your business correctly. Right. See what you're doing already. How can you increase, improve that, and build a much? I think okay. it's a really positive. So, so, so if I own if I own the Funky Tie Company and I uh, have a, a shop and I set up online uh, with help uh, from this 9.3 million funding uh, in a, in a year's time, uh, you'll go to check that all of my ties are online, all of the prices are online, uh, that what you you see online is in stock and wasn't in stock a year ago, but isn't in stock now, and that if there's a sale or anything like that uh, that uh, that will be advertised and that the prices will go back up when they're supposed to go back up and that you be able to order online and that it'll be delivered to you in a day or two and that there'll be a good returns policy as well. Holy God, Michael, you, you must have had a bad experience with some company, but I want to be clear here. I've had a bad experience with Irish internet shops. Oh, right. Well, Michael, I've had plenty of positive experiences and the majority of us we, we, we talk to and research said that the service has greatly improved over the last couple of years. We want to enhance that. So, to which, be clear... Which, because it's that the .ie oh, shops that oh, people okay. think are Irish, but they're actually English. Okay. So, Michael, to be clear, right, what we'll do here, because this is taxpayers' money, we absolutely monitor and check and research the spend to make sure it is doing what it was allocated to do. Okay. To draw, so, 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 to be clear, to draw down the money here, this is a, it, it's, it's, not, it's a difficult application. You have to put some effort into this. You have to engage people which are ready to make the application. Mm. You have to convince, because it's competitive funding, you have to convince Enterprise Ireland that this is worth giving you the money. Mm. Then you have to spend it in conjunction with monitoring uh, from Enterprise Ireland. And we track that, we research that, and we we report back to the Department of Finance and we look for more money. So we can see all those companies are looking to give you the list of here in Media now. Their experience is massive. They can show what their sales have increased. They've increased their employees. That's a really positive thing. But also, the consumer, the customer, you and many others will benefit from a much uh, much greater service, enhanced service, distribution, choice online. I'm not saying that a shop has to have every product online. Part of the strategy is to work out what are their most important products to have online. What do the customers want? Can they can they research their customers' needs? Can they reach that? Can they service that? Mm. And if we if we assist that journey they will be able to compete with those international players because we okay. want to create Irish jobs. All right, that 9 million or 30 million that you're putting into helping people to get on the internet to sell their products, would that not be better put into something like housing, uh, given the dismal record of this government in housing? Uh, and we see this week the daft.ie report, impossible to afford to rent anywhere, and made 1551 now the average uh, asking price. So, Michael, a couple of points I'd make here. Uh, first of all, the spend on housing uh, this year and for the next couple of years of, of taxpayers' money is going to be over four billion. So let's make a link here. How can we do that? We can do that because 
we nearly have two and a half million people employed in this country by businesses. We use the taxes from yeah. those workers to fund all the services as well as every other tax. Well. you've been telling us for six so, years you're going to fix the problem and here we are, it just keeps getting worse. So, so again, so, so there's a link to jobs and expenditure on housing. So in relation to the cost of rent, there's no more denying, Mike, the cost of rent is, is extremely high. But and why didn't you an- fix it? Okay, this is the asking rents. And, and I said to you before, and I think any reasonable person will appreciate, if you don't build houses for about 10 years, which happened in this country from mm. 2008 to 2018, you are going to end up with a shortage of housing. The very first chance we got to spend taxpayers' money on housing yeah. again was about 2016. It was 2016, and you said you'd fixed the problem in 18 months. So, this, this, is what you said, this is what you said to me in 2016, Minister. Uh, with everyone's support and all the stakeholders involved, county councils, approved uh, housing bodies, private developers, landowners, if everybody gets in behind this, we can solve this problem because it is fixable. How quickly do you think you can fix the mistakes you've made? I'm sorry, Michael. Uh, I've said the mistakes are of previous uh, administrations, in my view. Uh, We didn't have the resources or the money we would have liked to have had to address this uh, quicker than this. Uh, And there's other reasons as well. And that's why we put together a a housing action plan to make sure everybody plays their part now and every government department uh, plays their part to make this happen. How quick can it it be addressed? Look, it is a four to five year plan to completely solve the, the housing supply issue, both of social housing to address the social housing list, but also to address the supply of private housing. But I believe that over the next 12 to 18 months, we can really make a big impact on this. Right. So there should have been a, a big impact by 2018. The problem should be solved completely by now in four to five years from when you said that, Minister, which was 2016. So, can, Michael, if you give me a chance to answer this now, I'll be able to explain to you. What we launched at that time, 2016, was a five-year housing strategy to bring us from literally zero house building up to 25,000 houses. And at the time then, it felt was when we got the supply of housing to 25,000 houses a year and kept it at that level for the next 20 years, we would never have a housing crisis again in this country. Over those early years, housing supply did increase by literally 2019 to over 20,000 houses. And it was about to hit 25,000 houses in, in the first year of COVID 2020. We have lost two years. There's no denying that because of COVID. Uh, and so we're still not solved here. But thankfully this year... We will see, twenty. Well, we have in the last 12 months, 25,000 houses completed and available to the market. On site today, I think it's about 34,000 houses that will be completed as well. So the, the answer to this is in the supply of housing. Thankfully, because of that five-year strategy that you and I discussed many times before started, uh, with me and others in the Department of Housing under the last government in 2016, we are in a position to solve this. But we're still stuck in a situation that there's not enough houses for two reasons. And we have lost supply again. Our impact was hit because of COVID. The inflationary costs are putting immense pressure on the system this year. But also, there's a massive um, jobs recovery in this country. And there's an, awful, there's an awful lot of people in this country now working and needing accommodation and living here. Many come home during COVID. Many others coming into work. We have to, every effort is needed on public and private sector to catch up here and deliver housing. And it's taking a little bit longer than I hoped it would, but but at least we're, we're well on with supply of housing. Okay. We spoke, Michael, Minister, we, we'll, pull, we'll, we'll pull out a recording of uh, this morning's programme, perhaps in six years, perhaps not. We'll leave it there for the moment, though. Thank you indeed for joining us. That's uh, Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail, Damien English, who's a uh, Fine Gael TD from Meath West. 
Message on WhatsApp says, seriously, Michael, you are the dinosaur here. Educate yourself on how online business works. It's not a case of going on Facebook and TikTok. There's a significant cost involved in developing a proper sales integrated website. You were being blatantly ageist. Why shouldn't assistance be given to support the online transformation? I'm really delighted you asked that, you know, that I really am because I'm going to answer it. Uh, and maybe the money should be given. Uh, but I am delighted that you asked it. And yes, you are right. I am a dinosaur. I, I am such a dinosaur that I remember buying things off the internet with a credit card and a computer in the 1990s. Uh, we're going back 20, 25, 30 years ago since this started. Uh, and that is why I'm saying that it's something that the uh, shops in this country are living in the dark ages over. Is it ageist for somebody who's old uh, to, say, get with it to somebody else who's old? I don't know if it is. Well, then I am ageist. But uh, I do believe that there's been a lack of interest, that people thought it wasn't important and they allowed the market to be taken from under their feet. They allowed these companies to come from elsewhere, particularly the UK with .ie websites set up up here as the Irish whatever and the Irish this that and the other and people were buying online because it's handy and they like it and particularly young people call it ages or not I think it's a fact particularly people uh, younger people buy online uh, older people are suspicious of doing it but it's nothing new and that's the point it's nothing new it's been there available and being used for the last 25 30 years and if you need to be told that now if you need that to be part of your business plan well good luck to you uh, and I don't know how long you'll be in business for. Somebody else saying it would fit them better to put the money into the health service. People are waiting for operations in hospitals uh, and uh, that new hospital would be a great idea for Kells. Uh, thank you, Deirdre and Kells, uh, for suggesting that. Uh, somebody, uh, there's a, a lot of bad language coming to us, uh, uh, which I won't read out, just to mention that to you. If uh, you're one of uh, the people who were sending abusive messages uh, about uh, some of the things that you heard this morning, uh, we like uh, comments on the topics rather than the people talking about them, if you don't mind. Eamon No Party says, seeing as the government has money to throw at everything, would you please ask the next TDs or ministers who were on the programme, when are they going to stop the rotten levy on medication? That's a good question. Uh, thanks uh, for that, Eamon. Uh, somebody else, Seamus in Dundalk says, anything that can help business to boost sales can only be a good thing. It was a good thing 25 years ago, Seamus. That's the point that I've been making. Online is now as important as a physical presence for business to survive into the future. That's what we were saying 25 years ago, Seamus. Uh, so many shops are closing down, which are decimating town centres. If shops close, then jobs are lost. Absolutely. And that's possibly because... Uh, they didn't open their eyes 25 years ago or 20 years ago or 15 years ago or 10 years ago and here we are today. And yeah, look, you know, I think if nobody wants the shops to close down. Everybody, I, myself more than anybody, I would think, wants to support Irish business. And if it means giving 9.3 million euro to businesses for them to get their act together, well and good. Let's do it. Uh, but let's hope that we're not back here in a, another year or two talking about businesses not having an online presence. And as for uh, these social media sites and so on, people do a lot of business on, on social media and it doesn't cost anything 
and they'll tell you that themselves uh, but uh, it doesn't have to be as I think it's actually when you don't understand the internet it has to be this big fussy thing and you have to go and get consultants and pay a fortune for it uh, and, and there's a time and a place for everything and there is a time and a place for that but it's not always the case it's not always the case that it's not it's not always the case that it is and that's the point that I was trying to put to the Minister now let's talk about something else completely different a lack of resources in children's disability services in County Louth and in County Meath these were uh, some of the issues that were raised in the Dáil last night by Darren O'Rourke of Sinn Féin in Meath and Rory O'Murakou of Sinn Féin in Louth no occupational therapists in paediatric service in the HSE primary care centre in Barrack Street in Dundalk with four vacant posts to be recruited and uh, one maternity leave vacancy failed to fill vacant posts via um, agency recruitment competition alongside uh, three other CHOs to fill senior vacancies this will be late uh, autumn for appointment if successful what we're talking about is 659 children uh, on the waiting list uh, for primary primary care occupational therapy uh, paediatric assessment. 382 uh, are on it for more than a year and the average waiting time is circa three years. Look, we can pick multiple issues. I'm dealing with a nine-year-old boy with global development delay, so that's mental and physical issues. Uh, His father has been told in the last while that for occupational therapy and speech and language therapy, he could be waiting another eight to 12 months for uh, appointments. Um, He was initially with the early intervention team in the Boyne Business Park in Drogheda, I think until he was six, then he was moved to the children's team and Dundalk got services till around October 2019. I accept COVID created difficulties, but he hasn't got any face-to-face speech and language therapy since that. An occupational therapist has visited since we became involved with that, obviously isn't sufficient to cut the mustard given the circumstances. Very awkward circumstances at that for that family. That's uh, the story from Louth. Uh, Minister Abbott will be familiar with the issues in County Mead. She attended uh, uh, a meeting with parents of children with disabilities on the 3rd of May in the Pilo Hotel. So she will have heard this articulated far better than than I am now and spelled out very clearly. Um, similar to Deputy Omoroku, we have PQ replies back, you know, four children uh, disabilities network teams in the county, every one of them um, uh, 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 with vacancies in some, you know, one in four positions are, are vacant. You know, there's vacancies at, you know, every grade um, across every discipline um, and that has a, a real impact in terms of the services that are available to people. Um, it, it really needs to be addressed and it doesn't end there. You, know, you can say the same in terms of paediatric psychiatry and you can say it ten times over in relation to respite. Uh, real impact. Real stories about real people in Meath and Louth. We're dealing also with a man with an autistic four-year-old that isn't toilet trained can't get a place in, uh, in, in in a school at the minute. A family uh, I- intervention meeting, and again, uh, the mother was told that there would be nothing possible for a couple of months in relation to therapies. Um, this child isn't toilet trained. That is obviously creating specific um, difficulties. Uh, the problem is can't get a place in a special school, can't get a place in a regular school till that's actually um, sorted. And the only thing she's been offered is parenting programmes. This obviously 
isn't fit for purpose. We need to get serious in relation to workforce plan, planning. We need an assessment in relation to, we know what numbers we have. We need an assessment of how many people we need. We need to make sure we find any means possible in relation to ensuring that we can actually um, that we can actually employ those people. And if we need to look down the line, we need to ensure that we have a throughput of people that are being trained. And it is also ensuring that we facilitate people on work visas and whatever else is necessary. See, the cost of not doing this is astronomically huge. That's Rory Marco in Louth. Let's hear a little bit more about some of uh, the issues in Mead. Here's Darren O'Rourke. I want, in, in the first instance, to, to commend... Um, uh, Siobhan Campbell um, I want to commend Rachel Martin from, from FUS Ireland Families Unite for Support and Services who have been energised uh, with everything they have gone on in their lives with all their responsibilities to um, um, to, to organise uh, and agitate uh, with, with parents with disability, of children with disabilities in County Mead and it is a huge undertaking. They have clear asks, uh, Minister, I'll put some of them on, on the record here. In terms of CAMs in County Mead, uh, there's no specific learning disability team. There are in other counties. There needs to be in Mead. Um, the issue of assessments of needs, the services aren't available for, 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 for children. Again, in terms of residential respite, there is a, an acute shortage that needs to be addressed in County Mead. In terms of emergency respite, there isn't any in the county, uh, isn't sufficient in the county if to go to RD and Bellbriggan out of the county. There's a list there. I will send more on. The Minister is aware of it. Um, we need to see progress in relation to these matters. Contributions in the Dáil yesterday from local Sinn Féin TDs, Darren O'Rourke and Rory O'Murku. Michael Reed on LMFM. Thanks to Grania Andrade who gave us a, a phone call uh, this morning and she said, listening to Damien English uh, on the programme uh, this morning and the Minister talking about the number of houses that are, are being built, Grania says there, there's no point in building houses if normal people on a normal wage can't afford to buy them. She also says uh, they can't afford to rent. So where does that leave people? It's the biggest crisis facing the country and there's no sense of urgency. The council housing lists are are growing and growing, which means you could be waiting 10 years or more for one of those houses. Well, let's speak to Father Peter McVerry, Jesuit priest who works with the homeless. A very good morning to you, Peter. Thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme. I'm sure you'll agree with Grania to some degree. The cost of housing is through the roof. The cost of rent, as we saw again yesterday from daft.ie, is not just through the roof, but uh, it's somewhere in outer space at this stage. Uh, And indeed, uh, the number of people who find themselves homeless continues uh, to increase. It, it is uh, an urgent problem, but it's been urgent allegedly for 10 years at this stage. Well, that's the problem. I'm sort of in despair at this stage. <laughs> this is the result of 15 to 20 years of failed government policy, whereby successive governments stopped building social housing and tried to rely on the private rented sector uh, to provide the housing. And they used this HAP payment, the housing assistance payment, to subsidize uh, households on low incomes. The, the results of that now are coming home to roost. 
the uh, private rental sector simply can't cope. <laughs> there are far, far more people looking for private rented than there are rental accommodations. Mm. And the rental accommodations are going down. The number available are going down. There's only something like 850 in the whole country last mm. month mm. available to rent. And it's actually going to get worse. Mm. Yeah, if you could... Uh, if you, if you, that, that was the point, uh, I think, that's uh, being well made. Uh, if you can afford to rent uh, at current prices, that's one thing. Finding somewhere is another thing. Absolutely. And so homeless people now, it's just hopeless. They're looking for private rented, but it's simply absolutely impossible. And as well as that, the HAP payment uh, hasn't been increased for six years. And so that people are paying what are called top-ups to the landlord mm. because the, the rent the landlord is charging is way beyond what the HAP payment is, is willing to do. I know one person, he's on €200 Euros social welfare a week, Every month he has to pay three hundred euros top up to the landlord, uh, which he simply can't afford. The situation is going to get worse as house prices go up. Landlords are tempted to sell. If you're a landlord in your forties or fifties, mm. and you have a house worth three hundred and sixty thousand, and you're renting at two thousand a month, or a thousand of which goes to the government in tax, it'll take you thirty years to get 360000 into your bank account, at which stage you'll be in your 70s or 80s. If you sell the house, you can have 360000 in your bank account within months, in your 40s and 50s at a time when the money is probably uh, far more useful to you. So I think as house prices go up, more and more landlords are going to sell, and uh, fewer and fewer rental uh, uh, properties are going to become available. And then we have an absolute catastrophe. <laughs> it's not a crisis, it's a catastrophe. Well, I mean, I think there's a few things you could add to that catastrophic potential. Uh, and one of them uh, we're going to see very soon uh, because landlords and others may not be able to afford their mortgage repayments. We're going to see an increase in interest rates. That's correct. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, and... Uh, so, yeah, some landlords are financially uh, in difficulties and will continue to be, but the majority of landlords don't have a mortgage on their house. Hmm. The majority have already bought the house and it is, it is, it is, it is mortgage-free. So it's, uh, I don't know, I, I think uh, <laughs> we are facing it. And then, you know, we're delighted to have the Ukrainians here, but we're hmm. not going to be able to house them. They're going to be in army barracks and empty buildings on bunk beds for, for, for months, if not years. Accommodation simply isn't <laughs> simply isn't available. <laughs> so, Take your so, time there, Peter. Uh, no, it's just an old cough I have, that's uh, <laughs> I, I know, but no need to struggle through it. Uh, I, I was just going to mention the Consumer Price Index uh, published yesterday by the CSO, and that adds to it all. Uh, we're looking at uh, inflation uh, hitting it around... 8%, 7% in the year up to April. They're reckoning it'll be um, 8% uh, pretty soon. Uh, but if you look at some of the stuff in it, every, the price of everything seems to have gone up. Uh, there's few exceptions. Uh, transport, fuel, clothing, footwear, the cost of accommodation and services. Uh, it's um, €23, Euro, I think, extra for a, a bottle of vodka. Uh, and that's coming from the CSO. Uh, I mean, yeah. th- 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 these are things. Uh, two and a half kilo uh, bag of potatoes is up by nearly 10 cents. 
they're, they're, they're little things perhaps, uh, but they all add up and you add it to the cost of rent going up or your um, your, your mortgage yeah, going up and so on. If you're, it's the perfect if, you're young, if you're a young person in this country with a qualification, <laughs> mm. why would you stay in Ireland? You're never going to be able to own your own house. No. You're going to be paying 40, 50 or more percent of your wages on, on rent. The cost of living is higher than in virtually every other EU country. Mm. What is there to keep you here? Well, you should never pay 40 or 50% of your wages. You should never pay any more than a third of your income. Yeah. 30%. Yeah, well, I know people who are paying 70% of their wa- of their wages on putting a roof over their head. But are they foolish living in mansions that they can't afford? No, no. This is their, they're earning reasonable, moderate income, but they're paying maybe 2000 2500 a month for, for rent, which they... Uh, which they simply can't afford. People who are on good incomes are living in poverty because so much of their money is going to a landlord. Yeah. And, you know, the problem is, what my solution is, you reduce rents. Government reduces all rents by 25% Mm. and reduces the tax on landlords' uh, rental income by 50%. So that's a win-win for both the tenants and the landlords. But you know the problem with that? Mm. The problem with that are the big institutional investors who have thousands of rental properties and they don't pay any tax on their rental income. They'd be screaming blue murder and they'd be going all the way to the Supreme Court to complain that this is against the right to private property. In the in the constitution, yeah, but they they, are, they don't charge less in rent when they do ask for rent. I, I was reading about a fellow in his thirties this morning living at home with his mammy. I don't think he's unusual. No, I mean there's people in their forties living at home. They can't afford to move out. Uh, and the big institutional investors they set the rents because they can put the rents up to anything they want. Uh, and some of them are leaving a lot of their rental properties idle. Because nobody's willing to pay the rent, but it suits them to keep the properties idle so that the rents remain high. And that affects every other rental property in the area, which is owned by ordinary uh, landlords. And then there's all the empty buildings all across the country. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. There's something wrong, isn't there? I mean, we've lost the plot or something. We're trying to catch up from failed government policies over 20 years. That's mm. not any particular, whether well, it's Fianna Fáil and Gael, they've been in government for 20 years. It's their failed policies, and it's the ideology. The ideology that uh, the private sector is supposed to meet all our needs. You know, we've privatised childcare, and that's in crisis. <laughs> we've tri- privatised the care of the elderly in, in hospitals, in, in, in uh, nursing homes. We've privatised all, we've privatised the bins. We've privatised everything. This ideology, the private sector is the most efficient, the most competitive uh, uh, and that's the solution to our problems. That ideology has failed, totally failed Mm. uh, and we need now the priority has to be building social housing, bringing back empty empty properties and the government's this thing is we we need an increase in supply. It's not increase in supply we need, it's increase in affordable supply. But why is it getting more expensive? Uh, Terry uh, in touch with us on Facebook saying it seems like all of uh, the government rent controls have made the situation a lot worse. Maybe it would be worse without the controls, I I don't know. But uh, I mean, that's Terry's perception and it's a fair comment, isn't it? 
Well, I think the rent controls have have, have made a, a difference uh, positively. Yeah, but you can understand uh, why he's saying it because, I mean, we saw rents increase by uh, 11% or something in the last year. That's right. The problem is that there's no rent controls on new tenancies. So if I'm a landlord, I buy a house and I advertise it for rent, I can charge what I want. There is no there is no control on what I can charge. And it's the new tenancies that are pushing up these, uh, these rents. And that's contributing to the low number of, uh, of rental properties available because people can't afford to move out of the property they're in and look for another one. They may want to move to a bigger property. They may want to move to a smaller property. But they know they're in a rent control uh, property. If they move out, they could be asked for anything. The rent, there's no control on the rent they will be asked for if they try to move to a new property. We'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, a feeling uh, that uh, we'll be talking about it again. I have a feeling that I might have said that again. There's a certain sense of deja vu to all of this, uh, and uh, I've no doubt that that will continue for some time to come. Peter McVerry, always good to talk, talk to you, and thank you indeed for talking to us. Okay, thank you, thank you very much. Peter McVerry, Jesuit priest who works with the homeless. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, for anyone who has uh, been thinking of housing Ukrainian refugees but thought, I can't afford it or it's too expensive or um, it doesn't seem fair to do it without some sort of reimbursement, uh, there is good news. Uh, The government has approved a €400 monthly payment for people who take in refugees. Let's speak to Nick Henderson, the CEO of the Irish Refugee Council. Good morning to you, Nick, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. It's approved in principle. How this pans out or when the money is paid is another day's work, it seems. Yeah, exactly. It's been approved in principle by the government subcommittee on Ukraine uh, that's what the, the Irish Times and others are, are reporting this morning. But it will take several months to to be uh, to be live, to be activated, and that's because it requires a a, a law, an implementing law. Uh, and as usual, there's various laws in in the pipeline and the queue, so it may take some time. And, and I would probably estimate uh, it won't be until uh, after the summer break. Uh, that that it will be ready. That that may be wrong. That's just my estimation because I think the, the Doyle will close in for the summer in, in mid July. Hopefully, it will be that before then because what we've always said around this is that it needs to be in place quickly, um, so that that people who are supporting Ukrainians or want to can can get access to this this stipend. Right, so you're talking seven months really after war broke out. Uh, it was the 24th of February, wasn't it? Uh, when yeah, indeed, yeah, 24th of February, yeah. So yeah. that, uh, and that's one of the things that we've we've been recommending to government is that the emergency response has been very strong. More than 17,000 people accommodated in uh, just over uh, two months. Very strong response, but it's that shift from the short-term emergency response into our medium term that's going to be really challenging. And there's there's various. Uh, bumps along the road. Firstly, that hotel accommodation, which is being uh, used to to a significant degree, will be in shortage over the summer. That may be offset by the fact that student accommodation is going to be available from uh, from next month. But then, looking ahead 
further into September, I think there'll be a, again another a, another point where where accommodation will be at particular under particular demand. It, it is already as well. We met the government yesterday, and, and they were very clear on that that they need more accommodation. Yeah, well, uh, and far fewer uh, refugees have arrived than had been anticipated. It's around twenty nine thousand at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, twenty nine thousand five hundred was the figure that the Department of Justice. Uh, gave yesterday. Uh, I think, interestingly, that that there was a very a, a very low number of people arriving over the weekend, but then it increased uh, mm. on at, at the beginning of this week. What, what, what would we have done if a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand had arrived? Uh, because there was the prospect of uh, that amount of people coming to the country. Yeah, I think that that, that well, those are the figures used by government ministers. Mm. I think I've, we've spoken before about this, yeah. um, about how I think that that type of figure was probably inappropriate. I, I just don't think it was necessarily accurate, and we didn't know how many people would be coming. Um, and also, let's put this into to mm. contrast. Um, Ukraine, uh, sorry, Poland has welcomed, I think, more than... 1.5 million yeah. Ukrainian refugees and, and were with 29,000, yeah. um, not even the, the size of the Aviva Stadium. Um, so, uh, Was it to give the impression of a, a, a crisis bigger than actually is the case in terms of finding accommodation here so that people would be charitable and take people into their homes? I don't know. I don't think it was that approach. I'd prefer to look at it as that they, they didn't really know how many people were fleeing, and we still don't yet know. Mm. You know, the conflict has shifted to the east of Ukraine. Mm. Um, I think it's likely to persist for some time, um, uh, but we don't know whether it will expand back out mm. into the other parts of Ukraine. And if it did, I think the number of people fleeing would, in, mm. would increase. Uh, and pe- people who have taken people in uh, on occasion have been surprised at the extra expense. Uh, everybody's giving out about everything, the cost of everything, like the cost of electricity and so on. Uh, and when you have more people in the house, of course, uh, there's more drain on the power supply uh, and everything else for that matter. Yeah, there is. Uh, and one of the things we've recommended is the, the stipend. It's not mm. it's not a it's not rent, not payment. It's just a support. In April, wasn't it when you recommended? Yeah, we did the, yeah. the housing paper back then. It seems I struggle with the, the last few months putting it all in place. But I think mm. it was um, late April. Mid-April, we recommended that. We also suggested that the government produce some resources to help host. And I think those are in the pipeline, but there are other organizations doing that. Um, mm. Open Community, which is uh, uh, a, a, an organization that supports sponsorship, community sponsorship of refugees, and then Helping Irish Hosts. Mm. Uh, I've got, you can Google those. Both those have resources to help hosts, just to, to make it... Um, to, to draw attention to people about the challenges of being a host, yeah. that it is an amazing thing, but there are difficulties and challenges and you mm. have to be respectful and give people space and agency. Mm. I've heard but really all, good stories, I have to say, yeah, as well. Um, yeah. you know, uh, it's changed people's lives for the better in some circumstances, but people are finding uh, problems. And I've also heard concern uh, because uh, you can apply through the Red Cross uh, to make your house available to people. Uh, but there's other ways of taking in refugees. Uh, and people have been concerned uh, if they've gone a different route other than the Red Cross, will they be uh, eligible for this payment? I would... I, I don't know that. That may be yeah. worked out in due course. I think one of the things we also said is that if you, if you are in that scenario, 
there should be a way that you can just tell the state that we are doing this. We've been doing this for some time. It's working well, or it may not be working well, but we're doing this so that the state know where people are. Mm. Uh, Is it possible there's more than 29,000 here because they haven't been documented as such? No, I think think that figure is probably pretty accurate because that's the number of people, as I understand it, who have been issued temporary protection. Of course, yeah. Yeah, 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 so it's the figure, the the, the more variable figure is probably the number of people, now the state is saying 17,000, the government is saying 17,000 people. Mm. And I think that would probably also actually be quite accurate because... They know who they're accommodating. Um, so so I, I actually think that the numbers are pretty accurate. Um, okay. because And, and mm. fundamentally because people are getting temporary protection at the airport and that's the that's the, the, the data that the, mm. the, the, they're collecting. Okay, if you've handed over a, a holiday home to a, a family of uh, people uh, in comparison to a room to one person, uh, there will be questions about the 400 euro. Will it be 400 euro per person or uh, just a flat rate? Uh, and I think the government still hasn't made up its mind on that. Yeah, and I think the Times this morning reported that it would be a flat rate. Um, I, we, we spoke about this a few weeks ago, I think, that, and we said, well, it's always going to be crude. You know, you're not always going to pick up the nuances and the numbers, So, but uh, the, the, the positive thing about a flat rate is that you can do it quickly and there's less uh, less scrutiny or process mm. needed. Um, but some people may reflect and say that, sure, what's the, there, there's a big difference between hosting somebody for a few weeks in your front room or, or your back room mm. uh, compared to passing over my second home, my holiday home that I'm, I'm not using till, till, till the autumn. Uh, and, and I think, I'm not sure, but I think that this payment relates to people hosting in their homes Ukrainian refugees. It's not necessarily about the holiday home point, which still is, is, I don't know if it's under discussion or not. Again, it was one of our recommendations back in April. Okay, Um, when when, when, uh, you look at people at the moment uh, who are sleeping in in halls or in hotels, um, it's not ideal. should this be done quicker um, to take people out of those situations? Yeah, and that's something we've always said. You need we need to be doing this really, really quickly. Uh, and now the state say that well, we are doing things very quickly. We've accommodated seventeen thousand people in, in in just over two months. So there's that to be considered. Um, what our big point is that we're great as a country at doing things an emergency response, but changing gear into a long-term response and maybe having the two things going on simultaneously is the challenge. I'm not saying it's easy whatsoever, uh, but with the right ideas and uh, implemented, uh, we think it is possible. So you'd have uh, services for people who are just arriving, but also supporting people who uh, have been here now possibly for, for two months or more um, and getting, the, getting those people into slightly more longer-term, longer-term accommodation certainly uh, out of the, the temporary type style accommodation that's being used, say, in Mill Street in, um, mm-hmm. in Cork, Cork yeah. and then also the, the, the hotels that people are, mm. are living in. Hotel for a night or two, nobody would, would, would have mm. a problem with Very, that. But for yeah. a longer term period, it, we, we know from our work in direct provision, and let's not forget there's more than 2,000 people mm. in the direct provision pro- who are in the asylum process, who are in hotels. It, it's not it has negative effects on people and in particular on children. 
Okay. We leave it there for the moment, Nick. Thank you indeed, as always, uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Nick Henderson is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Refugee Council. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Well, if uh, you were going to talk about uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol, I think you'd be forgiven for taking a deep breath. On Northern Ireland and, and the United Kingdom's assertion, um, the, the, I, I regret the juxtaposition of um, any, any idea that uh, a unilateral legislative initiative to circumvent the protocol is about the Good Friday Agreement. I would have an opposite view. I think any unilateral legislative initiative by the United Kingdom government that would seek to undermine or circumvent the protocol would have a very destabilising impact on the Good Friday Agreement and would be very unhelpful. And I've communicated that to the British Prime Minister. We had a very frank and honest discussion on Tuesday morning last. I stressed that I felt the best pathway was towards an intensification and a professional engagement between the United Kingdom government and the European Union in respect of the operation of the protocol to minimise any impacts on the free flow of goods into Northern Ireland. I believe that's attainable. I believe it was close to to being detained last autumn. I thought Lord Frost made a very unhelpful intervention when he raised the the, the, um, the, um, the European Court of Justice almost uh, just the night before uh, the Vice President of the Commission, Maris Sefcovich, was publishing his proposals um, on uh, medicines, SPS and customs. Let's speak uh, to the Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne, Fianna Fáil TD, for me, these two's on the line. Good morning, Minister, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. We heard a, a little bit of uh, what the Taoiseach said yesterday in an Oireachtas committee there yesterday. He, he was very clear in what he was saying about this unilateral action having nothing to do with the Good Friday Agreement, that it would undermine peace and stability. Uh, in fact, on this island, uh, the very purpose of the Good Friday Agreement uh, how they keep changing the goalposts uh, and what they should be doing uh, is uh, working to make this work. Uh, but what the British are saying is anything but clear. Yeah, it's it's not clear at all um, what they're saying. They This is now maybe the third time they've proposed uh, unilateral action. Previous two occasions, I was pretty confident that ultimately they wouldn't do it because they'd be told that you couldn't do it. Um, I still stick to that view that ultimately they won't do this. Uh, what they're proposing, um, but they have already taken some unilateral actions, of course. But it's completely um, against the Good Friday Agreement that both governments wouldn't be singing off the same hymn sheet. Um, so the idea that this thing that we have to protect the Good Friday Agreement is is, is not is not the case because the protocol, in its in, in the very text of the protocol, uh, is the protection of the Good Friday Agreement um, that is based on the Good Friday Agreement that's there to protect it. So the idea then that you come in and interfere with the protocol and say you're doing it on behalf of the Good Friday Agreement I think is, is simply not credible. Or that uh, you would be doing it to protect peace and security in the United Kingdom, which is what Liz Truss has been saying, uh, by ripping up a, a, an agreement that brought peace to the island. Well, there you go. You know, I mean, I think I think what we need to do is just keep reminding people exactly what the Good Friday Agreement is uh, what it does, what it means. And uh, there's a lot of people in British politics at the moment who would never not have been around 
uh, at the time the Good Friday Agreement was signed. I wouldn't really be familiar with the detail of it. Um, I think we need to keep reminding people exactly what it is. I mean, it, quite frankly, it comes to some. It comes as a surprise to some of the British political class uh, that there is a that business in Northern Ireland supports the protocol. Uh, the, the, the <laughs> when you mentioned this, like what? Um, and it's incredible because mm. business does support the protocol. It's the best of both worlds for business. Exactly, it's yeah. the best mm. of both worlds for business. So, uh, what, what I fe- fear is that this has all been driven by a sort of a London agenda to appeal to a certain number of backbenchers in the Tory party. And it's very, very dangerous. It's certainly not being done with the best interests of the of the north of Ireland. And look, I'd say this: I accept that unions have have concerns. They've always had them, but there was a point when they all accepted the protocol. Mm. Then they changed their mind again. Um, but I'm absolutely confident, though, if the mm. if the British and European Union could work out the flexibilities on the protocol that the European mm. Union had proposed, then the unionists could could be persuaded back, especially if both governments mm. are thinking off the same issues. Yeah, and that's exactly the point that Taoiseach was making there, wasn't it? Uh, that uh, they set out a, a list of problems. Europe moved uh, to address that. Maris Sefcovic made his announcement and then they came up with the European Court of Justice. Yeah, and, and the truth is, here's another example. The, the medicines issue, which I probably discussed mm. with you at some point. I mean, you know, that, that was an issue, but mm. it was completely solved about a month ago. There wasn't a word about it. Now, we didn't want to make a word about it because we didn't want to be seen to be interfering in the Northern Ireland elections, but that issue was totally solved. Uh, on the European side and should be seen as a sort of a the, the genuineness of the European Union what they want to do and like the, the, I think there's a lot of exasperation on the European Union side because I mean you heard what Marisek said you know the priority has been peace for, for, for the last 25 years without that and that they've given a lot of money and continue to give a lot of money into Northern Ireland despite it not being part of the European Union um, and I think everyone just finds this really really frustrating and you know I'm like it's, it's a huge I, I find it fantastic as an Irish person that there's a you know, a Slovak commissioner, Sepkovic, mm. and, and the rest of the European Union are standing by what they feel was an agreement reached with the British to help Northern Ireland. And, like, it would be much easier for them to say, oh, that's grand, forget about it. But no, they don't. Uh, they stick by all the member states, they stick by agreements, and they try to do what they feel is right. And what they feel is right is that you would actually sit down together um, to talk about things. And that's just uh, the opposite of the approach that the British seem to be taking at the moment. Yeah, I don't know how anybody has any patience left. Well, <laughs> it's difficult, but unfortunately, I suppose we just have to keep keep some level of calm and patience because we don't want to make things worse. Um, but I have to admit, it's very, very difficult. Like, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a sister by profession. We saw a term used yesterday in the legal advice, apparently, certainly in the media reports, primordial significance. Um, this is a legal... I mean, I was saying to myself, I never heard of this before, and I was glad to hear that mm. lots of eminent lawyers were saying the exact same thing. Um, but it was meant to be some kind of legal term, and we are like, what is this about? And I think the, everyone's first reaction was, "Is that did I miss that day in, in college like when they taught that? Like, yeah. But it's, it, it just doesn't exist um, in, in law. And yet it's being used, at least in the media, as some sort of legal pretext for, for, for doing what they're doing. You know? <sighs> so it is extraordinary. I, I, but I mean, it can't get worse. I, I mean, there's only one step left for it to get worse, and that's for them to follow through on what they're threatening. It's hard to know because we we do hear um, ministers, and I was on I was on British radio with it, with Conor Burns, who's a Northern Ireland minister, who I know quite well and got on quite well with. But he was he was saying that they still accept there would be some checks, and that's what I thought the basis of the discussions would be, the the actual extent of that. So I'd be encouraging Conor and and everybody else uh, on the British government to um, to just keep the talks going, and we we'll maintain the best possible cordial relationships with them. In fact, my, my British counterpart is supposed to be, um, he's invited to come to the constituency, in fact, and to Dublin um, in the next two weeks. So I'll be hoping to have really good conversations with him to try and persuade him of 
uh, you know, what, what the reality of the situation is and, and to do it in a friendly, constructive way because that's what we want. Like, we want, to, we, want to, we, want, we want this sorted. And we keep reminding our British friends as well that the European Union has absolutely no interest in the constitutional question. They see that absolutely as a matter for people in Northern Ireland. So, so there's sometimes you hear oh, the European Union is pushing United Ireland. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. Like they, they just don't get involved in that side of it. They see really what is a technical agreement, the protocol, but designed to secure peace, and they want to make sure that agreement is implemented, and they've shown huge flexibility uh, in the way that it will be implemented. All right, Minister, explain to us, if you can, uh, what it will mean uh, in day-to-day life if the British unilaterally rip up the protocol. Well, it's very hard to say. Um, I think, I think first of all, there would be serious consequences for, for Britain and its economy. Um, and again, I don't really want to go into what those consequences would be. They've been set out before, but I think... Yeah, and ours, I mean, they're talking about a trade war, aren't they? I mean, prices well, yeah, I mean, pr- look, prices I mean, might be high, but they'll be an awful lot higher if we get into a trade war. But actually, they'll be, they'll be much higher in Britain. Yeah. This is the bit mm-hmm. I don't get, like, um, because cause if... Now, I'm not, I'm not here to threaten anything or to threaten trade wars or anything like that. Um, but there obviously are, are consequences, but we don't want those consequences. And we don't want them for Britain either. We want us all to be working together. So, so that's what my efforts going to be focused on, rather than what are the consequences. The consequences, whatever they would be, would be would be decided by the European Commission and the member states of the European Union together. Um, but you've certainly heard what what people have been saying before, and I, you know, I think perhaps Britain is saying, "Oh, it's a new phase." Ukraine, and everyone's grateful for what everybody's doing for Ukraine. The Ukrainians are grateful to Britain. They're also grateful to us. Quite frankly, member states of the EU will see this as just a completely separate issue. Uh, and trade issues that like we're we're very close friends with with the US, but there has there was a trade war mm. on certain products for the last number of years as well there. So yeah. and that caused particular difficulties in parts of the US. But we're talking we're talking about trade or a trade war between the United Kingdom and the European Union, which Ireland, the Republic, is obviously a member of. Uh, will there well, be? A, will there be? I, a, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, sorry, just to be clear. No, I'm I not don't, talking about no, that. No, okay, and I accept it. But, uh, but but will there be a border between the two? Between between the European Union and the United Kingdom between Ireland and the north of Ireland? No, there won't, there, there won't be a hard border. There, there, there won't be a hard border. I think, I think that's been everybody's priority. Um, but I we're mean, not all working priority. together if this happens. This is the problem, isn't well, it? Look, I mean, I, the, the point is, at the end of the day, the British legal advice is not correct and was shown not to be correct on the last two occasions that they tried to go for this. Um, and I, I still believe that the same will happen now and that this is some kind of a you know, weird negotiating tactic. Um, but, you know, we... we Everybody we, hopes that's the case. But if well, they follow through, there would have to be a border, would there not, Minister? No, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to counter them to that in any way at all. I mean, we're... we're that, in the, just to be clear, that's not saying no. I'm, no, I'm, there, you're there you're saying you be, won't counter this? No, I'm saying there will not be a hard border on the island of Ireland. To be absolutely no clear. matter what? No matter what. Well, then what do we do? do? Do we leave the single market? No, we're we're in the single market since the referendum in 1987. So mm. That simply just doesn't arise. So where's the border um, between Europe and the rest of the world, if you like? Well, the European Commission will have to will have to examine that. But the there will be certainly there will not we will not be suffering consequences for what the British government does. That's absolutely uh, the case. Mm. 
who who are you referring to when you say we, uh, Minister? Uh, that's the state of the Republic of Ireland, well, well, uh, or well, be, because you know there's two two jurisdictions on the island, obviously. Yeah, yeah, and I can speak, I can speak, I can speak for the jurisdiction of the Republic of Ireland as as, as a minister of the government there. Um, I can't speak directly for Northern Ireland, but that all I know is that the European Commission is doing absolutely everything possible to uphold the protocol, which protects... And Northern Ireland is not part of the single market. It has access to it for goods only. So that's one aspect. Northern Ireland is losing out on so much at the moment already. Mm. But it has this access, which is really important. I have to say, Michael, because the voice of business is so strong in favour of it, I ultimately don't see how the British government can go up there and punish them. Mm. Um, it simply will not be tolerated. Um, and the DUP as well will be under pressure from business people. Uh, particularly farmers. You know, this is, a, I mean, the whole system of mm. milk and um, uh, agricultural production is done on an all-earning basis. And you're talking there about DUP grassroots in many areas. Mm. They're simply not going to tolerate this. So I think like a lot of these things, these things haven't been taught through. Like the Article 16 thing, that went on for a while. I, I think I said at the time, this is not taught through. They seem to, at the time, and I was correct, mm. and I also absolutely believe that now, that this is not taught through. That it's, it's, an, it's another tactic um, for whatever domestic political reasons and we'll move on from it and unfortunately we've had this all along and it is leading unfortunately to it's leading to uncertainty in the north and that's that's a real difficulty for any business or if you want an investor to go up to the north it's, it's a bad week to do it and that's that's the fault of the government in London uh, and they're talking about protecting their union mm. and protecting their well, people. They've a few supporters uh, I think in uh, the ranks of the DUP for that matter. Yeah but the but DUP yeah. the DUP needs to be asked as well like I mean you know what would you say to an investor yeah. coming to Northern Ireland this week? Mm. They have oh, no answer. They'd say we're British. <laughs> I mean, that's what they'd say. Right. Yeah. The investor would say, okay, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll build in the dock. Don't, don't, don't ask me to rationalise it. <laughs> but no, this is the problem. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, we, we can't. Yeah. Um, you Minister, know, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I know you need to be elsewhere, so uh, I thank you for your time and for joining us no on problem. the programme. Thank, thank you, you very much indeed. That's uh, the Minister for European Affairs, Fianna Fáil TD, for me, these Thomas Byrne. Michael Reed on LMFM. A tenor a year for 299 years. Uh, we've been hearing this argument over the last number of weeks. Why would you not build the new National Maternity Hospital on the grounds of St Vincent's Hospital campus? The Sisters of Charity's transfer to St Vincent's Holdings required them to apply for Vatican permission under the mandatory Canon Law 1291 procedure of alienation. Vatican permission was conditional on the sisters observing certain specified canon laws. The main objects of St. Vincent's companies bind them to uphold the values and vision of Mother Mary Aikenhead. The directors and shareholders are committed to upholding the vision and values of Mary Aikenhead. It is not credible that these values include the provision of services such as elective abortion directly contradictory to Catholic teaching. Concern about Catholic ethos is too acute to proceed unless and until there is full scrutiny of all correspondence between Ireland and Rome. I've attended, uh, appended note D below for a schedule of documents. The plan is contrary to the recommendation of the 2019 report on the role of voluntary organisations in public health care, that the state should own the land on which the hospital is built, and if this is not possible, any capital investment by the state should only be provided subject to prior agreement on the services that will be delivered. The government should directly ask the new owners of St. Vincent's Holdings why they cannot gift, as the Sisters of Charity said they would in 2017, or sell the land to the state. 
Specifically, do the conditions set down by the Vatican preclude St. Vincent's Holdings from gifting or selling the land? Right, so that's the argument against, and it comes from the very influential voice of Peter Boylan, Dr. Boylan, former master of uh, the National Maternity Hospital. And he, like others, wants services that are legally allowable in the state to be available in the new hospital. Here's some of those services. Prior agreement on the services must include a specified list of procedures as following, including but not limited to abortion according to the 2018 Act, elective sterilisation, assisted fertility and gender realignment surgery, and any procedure that becomes legal in the future. It is incorrect to suggest that the constitution of the NMH would have to be revisited every time a new treatment or procedure becomes legally permissible. Peter Boland was speaking at uh, the Eructus Health Committee yesterday. Let's speak once again to Bernie Lanan of Our Maternity Hospital Group. Good morning to you, Bernie, and thanks uh, for joining us again on the programme. Uh, an awful lot has happened since we spoke to you last week, and there's been an awful lot of arguments made on both sides. Uh, are you satisfied with the assurances that you've been given over the course of the last week or do you intend to go ahead with your protest tomorrow? As two answers there, Michael. The first is I'm not at all satisfied with the assurances that we've been given. I sat in the health committee session in the Dáil on Wednesday for four hours and I didn't hear anything that we hadn't heard before. Uh, Nothing new was put into the uh, public arena which would reassure anyone. The ownership position of a public asset which will cost upwards of a billion euro at the latest estimates is cloudy. Uh, It's on a lease land owned by a private successor company to the Religious Sisters of Charity is included in that lease along with all the buildings on it now and all buildings to be constructed on it within 299 years. Mm. The government have told us that because it's a long lease, it's effective ownership. It's not effective ownership. If we owned it, we'd be free to do as we want with it. We're not. We're not allowed to sell it. We don't actually own it. Simple as that. The phrase clinically appropriate, which appears in many of the governing documents of the new setup, which Mm. are hugely complicated. Three companies, three sets of directors, three separate constitutions, The phrase clinically appropriate appears throughout and nobody seems to know exactly what it means. Right. Um, You heard at at that particular meeting from John O'Donoghue, uh, legal advisor to the HSE, uh, he he, he, uh, explained what clinically appropriate means and says that it doesn't uh, prevent the state from providing these services in the hospital. You also heard from Professor Mary Higgins uh, and indeed Rona Mahoney, the former, another former master of uh, the National Maternity Hospital. Uh, but none of them reassured you, obviously. They didn't because there are slightly different versions of clinically appropriate depending on who you speak to. Um, I was at the Dáil yesterday for questions and answers and government TDs for instance, Martin Hayden from Kildare came out and said he would like to see clarity on clinically appropriate. Emer Higgins came out and said she would like to see clarity on clinically appropriate. So if government TDs themselves are not convinced by the explanations they've heard, then how can we, the general public, be 
convinced. And that's really so the yes, problem, our, isn't it? I mean, everybody wants the same thing. Everybody wants a maternity hospital. I don't think anybody do. is too concerned about where it is, if the services are uh, available. Uh, and if everybody's on the same side, it's very hard for us as normal lay people to decipher this legal uh, speak uh, and um, to understand what it will mean when the hospital is eventually built. Absolutely. And that is one of the biggest problems about this. Right. The whole corporate structure is so complicated. It's been called Byzantine, Kafkaesque, labyrinthine, and that's by lawyers. And that's by lawyers who actually understand the stuff that's written in it. For well, the rest of us, it's as clear as mud. But the lawyers can't agree on what documents mean. Okay. Professor, or professor Deirdre Madden is a professor of law at UCC. She's a specialist in health law and medical ethics. She sits on the board of the HSE and she was not sufficiently convinced by the legal framework. She still has concerns Mm. over ownership, governance and control. Now, Simon McGarr, solicitor, spoke to the health committee. He is not convinced. No, let's hear. Not let, all let, the legal people agreeing here. And let, let's hear. Let, let's hear what Simon McGarr had to say. If you bear with me, Bernie, sure. because as you say, there's different legal opinions on this, and there is a proposal that may provide a, a solution, which we can talk about after this clip. But we did hear the legal advice that the HSE were giving when we heard John O'Donoghue speaking on the programme earlier in the week. But this is Simon McGarr, who's a solicitor who appeared before the committee yesterday along with uh, Dr Peter Boylan. And this is what he had to say about this confusing phrase which is clinically appropriate. There's two phrases uh, in the document in the lease, if you like, uh, which would put a requirement on the state to fulfil an order for this tenner a year. Otherwise, it goes up to 800 and something thousand, nearly a, a million a year for the lease. And it's a two-step process. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. As a public hospital, primarily for the provision of all <coughs> clinically appropriate and legally permissible healthcare services, including research by a maternity, gynaecology, obstetrics and neonatal hospital, and a range of related health services in the community and any other public healthcare service or services. Uh, This creates a two-step test for any permitted use of the hospital. And one should recognise that this is in the uh, the lease and therefore this is a granting of a permission by the landlord to the tenant. It is a restriction rather than an instruction. And the restriction is that it can only be where uh, the use is, one, clinically appropriate and two, legally permissible. The first of those two tests, I will argue, is both unnecessary and problematic. It's perfectly correct to say that uh, to to keep a legally permissible test, and there is no ambiguity as to what that phrase means, but unfortunately there is no definition of the phrase clinically appropriate within the lease that one can turn to to see what it is that was intended by the parties. So there is an ambiguity created. Right. It's that ambiguity that Simon McGarr has uh, been speaking about, Bernie, that has led to all of us finding it difficult to decide how we feel about this because we don't really understand it, because if it's ambiguous, uh, we don't know what it means or what it, it might mean. Now, there is this suggestion that it could be defined in the documentation, what they're calling a, a legal codicil, uh, which is a way of saying spelling out uh, what they mean when they talk uh, about uh, medically appropriate. Would that be enough to satisfy you? 
very much depends on A, whether it actually happens, because we've been promised lots of clarifications here and they've never actually arrived. As Breed Smith said at the Health Committee on Wednesday, it's drip, drip, drip. Little bits of information are dragged out and quite often contradict the information we've had previously. So it does depend on whether it happens and if it does happen, what it contains. Because up to now, nobody has been able to agree on a definition of clinically appropriate. Uh, So that question hangs over everything. What is clinically appropriate? What does it mean? Mm. Um, And that's dangerous. As Simon Gar quite rightly said, when terms are not defined in legal documents, there's ambiguity. And when there's ambiguity, it's dangerous. It can be dangerous for the lives of women if doctors are not aware of what is clinically appropriate. It is, it's dangerous for everybody if we don't know what clinically appropriate means in a document to govern a huge public expenditure on an asset which will actually not belong to us. I mean, I would question whether that is morally appropriate, but that's a, a separate issue, although one we should consider very mm. seriously in this regard. But clinically appropriate could actually cost a woman her life. Well, Vita, and yeah. according to Breed Smith, at the Health Committee on Wednesday, and many of us would agree with her, mm. was refused medical treatment which might have saved her life because somebody thought it was clinically inappropriate. Yeah. Well, that's absolutely correct. Uh, And uh, we heard that said uh, on uh, the programme as well. And of course, it was before repeal of the 8th and uh, somebody felt uh, that uh, it would have been in uh, breach of uh, the laws uh, at the time, Mm -hmm. although it was shown afterwards that she was entitled to have the uh, abortion. Absolutely. She died from sepsis. Uh, and it was an unnecessary death uh, right. because of a, a judgment uh, and a perception. But if it is spelled out and defined in the documentation what clinically appropriate means, if it says that abortion services are clinically appropriate, that gender realignment is clinically appropriate, IVF uh, or sterilisation or some of these other issues or something that is in future made legally permissible uh, by the state for a go a long way to to clarifying things for people, to addressing people's concerns. If we had a list of procedures which are considered clinically appropriate and and a phrase at the end to say, including the above, but not limited to the above Mm. or some such. Lawyers are well able to draft phrases that give clarity. I don't know why they didn't in this instance. And the suspicion must always be if a phrase which has been inserted into such complicated legal documents that have taken forever and a day to draft, if a phrase inserted there is ambiguous, is that deliberate? Is there something being concealed here? Is there something being deliberately fudged here because people couldn't agree? We do deserve to be told that. We do deserve to be given the information. Okay. So until such well, a time as we are it, given it, the information, yeah. we will be protesting. Yeah, and that is just a, a proposal at the moment. It may or may not uh, solve uh, the dilemma or the Absolutely. suspicion that you have, and you've a lot of suspicion, a lot of concern, and you'll be protesting uh, tomorrow. Uh, uh, at all, and we call yeah. on everybody who has any concerns about this to come out and protest with us, because if we don't protest, the government will railroad this through. If it's to go through, let it be done right. The women of Ireland do deserve 
the best national maternity hospital in the world. We deserve nothing less. Mm. But it must be done right. It okay. absolutely must be done right. If it costs somebody their life down the road, we haven't done it right. Mm. And you want to know before it's done that it's being done right. Well, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, and that, everybody and really that, uh, shouldn't uh, everybody. And that could be, as you told us the last time, uh, be uh, that the hospital is uh, developed uh, uh, and uh, operated from the grounds of St. Vincent's campus. But it you want that. It could be if yeah. it's done right. Yeah. And there are other options there. There yeah. is always the option for the St. Vincent's Healthcare Group to do the decent thing and gift the site to the people of Ireland, as was originally promised, or sell it to us mm. if they don't want to get yeah, it. I, I think they may be in front of the Health Committee uh, next week. Uh, that, I think, would help a, a lot of people uh, in terms of understanding this. Yeah. But uh, tomorrow at 2 o'clock at the gates of Leinster House. At the uh, gates of Leinster House on Kildare Street. And we would like people to come out and make some noise. Bring a whistle, bang a drum, bring a rattle, whatever. We're going to make some noise. We're going to be noticed. This can't go on. Okay. Thank you, Bernie. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us uh, this morning. That's uh, Bernie Lanan of uh, the group called Our Maternity Hospital Group who will be protesting at 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon outside of the Dáil. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, we've been talking a, a lot about housing and related issues over the last couple of days on the programme. They were doing it in the Dáil yesterday as well. In fact, it's probably true to say there was holy war in the Dáil yesterday and it wasn't a, a one-way street. Yeah, Tanisha, how long are you in government now? Is it 10, 11 years? I know over that period that we've seen rents actually double since you've been sitting around the Cabinet table. You were tweeting two years ago in relation to how your the government policies were working. You said rents down, homelessness down, house prices levelling off, our policies are working. Well, let me put some facts here today. Not Sinn Féin's facts, but the CSO's facts. In the last year, rents have gone up, new and existing tenancies, by 9.3%. Housing prices in the last year has gone up by 15%. In the last two years, the number of people in homelessness has increased by 15%. On any looking at those numbers, your policies are failing. And the initiatives that you're bringing in, as we warn you time and time again, indeed some within your own department and other external agencies warn you, will increase house prices, will push up rents further. So this harebrained idea that you now have, or your Minister for Housing has, that you obviously support, about giving away taxpayers' money of 144000 to developers to build apartments. But yet ordinary workers and families are going to be asked to fork out between five hundred and six hundred thousand euro for those same apartments. Time How can up, you stand Deputy, off please. stand over a type of hairbrain scheme such as that? Thank you, Minister. Deputy, Thanks very much, Deputy. This government has been office been in office for just over two years. Um, <laughs> That is a, fa- a fact, Deputy, and I'll, g- I'll, give, you some more, I'll give you some more facts in a moment. Um, this, part, this, this government has been in office for just over two years. Uh, the party that I lead has been in office for about 11 years. No party has been in government longer in this island than your party in the past 20 years. Uh, you've been in government in Northern Ireland for most of the past 20 years. Um, and I'm very happy to compare our record in government over the past 10 years uh, to that uh, of your party. Uh, you're the party that put the rents up in Northern Ireland. You're the party that increased the property tax, which is 
the domestic rate system in, in Northern please, Ireland. Please. Um, and you're the party that voted to increase the pension age in Northern Ireland. The tarnished um, without And any time, any time, any time I tell you a few home truths about your party's record in government in Northern Ireland, uh, you, you, lose, you lose the rag. You absolutely lose the rag because you don't want people to know the truth. And that is the record of your party in Northern Ireland. Whether it's COVID, whether it's employment, whether it's uh, uh, poverty, You've Thank you, only reasons to be ashamed of your party's performance in government. Thank you very much. Please, Deputy. You're out to vote, Minister Deputy, Deputy, resume your seat, please. Please resume your seat. Show some respect to the House. No, 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 please. We don't want any points of order. All right. That's how the parliament works in uh, this country. That bell does sound like a, a boxing ring, doesn't it? And the gloves were off. Uh, that was Pierce Doherty and Leo Radker having a go at each other yesterday. Thank you, Paul Indundalk, who was on the phone to us uh, this morning saying it's hard for people who are working, paying out for a big mortgage to end up living beside somebody in social housing with a 40,000 euro car outside their front door. Uh, a call to us from Debbie and Navin who says uh, the problem is no matter what goes up in price if the customer, it is the customer who will be hit because uh, the increase is always passed on to them. You can see it everywhere. She's worried about the costs for the children going back to school let alone anything else. And a text to us uh, from Leonard in Loud Village who WhatsApp to say that the way the DUP are carrying on they'll hand an All-Ireland on a plate to Sinn Féin. That's our programme for this week. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie 